Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The home of common sense. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are all the way through to Thursday already. Yet another week is about to be consumed uh, by news and consumed by time. Uh, Here we are, of course, as we approach summer, uh, actually getting a little bit warmer. But there's lots to discuss this morning, ladies and gentlemen. Archbishop Welby, or Archbishop Wokeby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, is it? Yes, that's right, he does, isn't it? Uh, This is a man who runs the Church of England. He's the top bod in the Church of England. Uh, He apparently is gone representative on earth according to him uh, he's previously said that people who vote Tory are a bit ungodly he now says uh, that it is morally unacceptable for migrants to be sent to Rwanda he's said that it's morally unacceptable for the government to try and solve the migrant crisis he's basically got up in the House of Lords uh, where you would expect him to be because of course that's where he spends most of his time rather than dealing with his actual flock He thinks uh, that he has the right to say that government policy, uh, which has been carried out by the will of the people, of course, uh, is wrong. He doesn't give an answer as to what we should do, but I suspect very much that he thinks we should allow anyone who wants to come to Britain to come to Britain, no matter who they are, no matter how they come here, and no matter where they're from, and regardless of what they may have done in the past. The problem for Archbishop Welby is that he's got it completely wrong. His compass is morally off. He doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. And in fact, he is a man uh, who is morally, in my view, completely and utterly unacceptable. Because what he should be doing is working on behalf of the Church of England. He should be housing migrants in some of the land that the Church of England owns. He should be using some of the money that the Church of England holds in its coffers. The hundreds of millions of pounds that they keep in pension funds. The hundreds of millions of pounds that they invest in companies around the world. They used to invest them in unethical companies, of course, until somebody pointed out that wasn't the greatest idea that they'd ever had. They used to invest them in arms companies. They used to invest money uh, in oil and gas uh, drilling companies, which are now considered to be uh, absolutely and utterly horrendous. They used to invest them in all sorts of dodgy businesses in order to make a bucket load of money. The Church of England, one of the richest organisations in Britain, is doing nothing to house migrants, is doing nothing to help migrants, is doing nothing to help the good people of this country. But I'll tell you who they are helping. They're helping the people traffickers. Yes, that's right. They're giving them succor and comfort. They're saying people should be allowed to pay £5,000 to human traffickers to come to this country uh, so that they can live here illegally. He says that they should be encouraged to come here despite the fact that they may lose their lives, despite the fact that their children might die on the way. Archbishop Welby thinks that's morally right. Well, Archbishop Welby, I'm afraid, is a complete and utter numpty. And he should be called out for it. And he has been called out for it by government ministers because he, along with a lot of other people in the House of Lords, is an absolute and utter waste of space. I wonder whether he's donating his fee from yesterday's appearance in the House of Lords. I'd like to know the answer to that. Because all you've got to do if you're in the House of Lords is turn up and they give you 350 quid just for the privilege. And you can have a subsidised meal while you're there. Marvellous, isn't it? It's also the only place in the entire part uh, of the Houses of Parliament uh, where you can go out the terrace and have a cigarette. That's all right as well. You don't have to worry about the laws. They're for the little people. They're not for us lords. My lords and ladies and gentlemen, you are standing accused of being a collection of complete poltroons and morons. But you get paid very well for it. Thank you very much indeed. Would you like another £350, my lord? Would you like some cheap food, my lord? How about some cheap drink, my lord? Don't worry. The taxpayer's an idiot. He'll pay for it. These people are an absolute anathema to democracy. Are they not? I mean, as if that wasn't enough to talk about, we've got the blob to talk about as well. We're trying to stop a load of Brexit rules from being broken. Also, children as young as 12 in Scotland can consent to puberty blockers. Brilliant. And as I said, the Trans Pennine Express, which has been taken back into public ownership, doesn't work because it's a trans train. We'll get round to explaining that later for those of you at the back who don't understand. We've got Isabel Oakshot coming up. We've got Rod Little coming up. We've got loads going on. Uh, the bloke in uh, Wales, Adam Price, the guy who runs Clyde Cymru, he's resigned as well. Apparently he's done something wrong. What's wrong with these idiots? This is Talk TV. What's so moral about not stopping people smugglers? Good question. Front page of the Daily Mail. Let's ask Isabel Oakeshott. Um, will anyone rid me of this damn priest? 
uh, as they say. Isabel, very good morning to you. Morning. I'm a bit worried about you, Mike. I think you're working yourself into a <laughs> massive ladder, but I can't say I blame you. I mean, listening to Justin Welby pontificating in that incredibly annoying, sanctimonious mm. way about why this legislation to stop the boats is all so morally wrong and all this hand ringing and bell ringing and God knows what else. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what an absolute plonker. Um, the guy's continually nominated for Plank of the Week, isn't he? I'm not he sure is. he's ever actually won it, but it's probably time. This is his moment. Uh, it is extraordinary. In fact, the debate in the House of Lords about the government's legislation was pretty interesting yesterday. All sorts of interventions from uh, Labour peers and other well-meaning but totally misguided lefties uh, banging on about why this is such a terrible thing and sets us at odds with everyone else and means that we're not going to be fulfilling our international obligations. Uh, The facts are the facts. Thousands of people are coming over here in rickety inflatables, Mm. risking their lives. There's nothing moral about us encouraging, because that is basically what we're doing by allowing it to continue to happen, people to risk their lives in this way, or the uh, people traffickers to make vast sums of money in this way. And worst of all, and this is the thing that wasn't uh, very widely acknowledged in the House of Lords debate yesterday, is just the absolute fact that a very significant number of people coming over are not fleeing terror and persecution. They are economic opportunists. And I can't say I blame them for giving it a go, but we cannot have a situation in this country where we just welcome in everybody. We can see that our infrastructure is already creaking. Yes, but it's the typical response of what I would call the sort of the the socialist middle classes in this country who seem to think that there's nothing wrong with loads of people. I mean, it's the equivalent, as I always say, of leaving your house front door open and having about 20 people turn up while you're out. You get home and they all go, uh, you don't mind if we stay here in your living room, do you? Oh, no, that's absolutely fine. And then another 20 turn up. And before you know it, you're literally standing, you know, cheek by jowl next to about 500 people in your house. It's ridiculous. It's madness. And in no other world would that be acceptable. But these people seem to think that there's nothing wrong with it. And I just don't quite understand it. I mean, is it all under the banner of hashtag be kind? Um, because maybe be sensible. Yeah. Uh, be smart should actually take a bit of precedence over be kind because being kind isn't always what it seems. It isn't welcoming any number of people who have little to contribute to this country and not necessarily uh, even plan to to do good here. We know the links with organised crime. We know the links um, with the Albanian criminal um, underground with this uh, evil trade. And there's nothing kind about continuing to encourage it. Nothing kind to the people here who are struggling to make ends meet, um, can't get the opportunities that they want, and critically, housing. I mean, this is a massive issue. Um, Access to affordable housing for ordinary people in this country, it simply doesn't stack up that you continue to add hundreds of thousands over, over a pretty short period of time that becomes millions, to the population without actually having the housing to accommodate them. No, exactly right. I don't know if you heard the uh, the vicar that uh, Julia was talking to this morning, who sounded a bit like sort of the vicar of Dibley in political form, um, who basically said um, when she asked him whether uh, he would take any refugees, he went, I've got three Ukrainians, as if that's now the new measure of virtue signalling, you know. And I said to her, I said, well, it's not a competition, is it? What are you supposed to go? Well, I've got five Ukrainians or I've got a couple of Ethiopians. I mean, it's ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. I just want to um, read out a little comment from the Archbishop yesterday in the debate. Um, He said, it is a siloed bill. It is isolationist. What the hell is a siloed bill? Mm. Can people not just talk normal language and try to connect with people rather than reinforce the impression that they are woefully and hopefully, hopelessly out of touch. And I think you made a really good point at the beginning of the programme in your introduction about the 300 smackers that you get for just rocking up to yeah. the House Lords. Um, is he donating those to refugee causes or where exactly 
does that go? And I wonder, I always think about this, the people that are putting a five or a tenner into the collection plate on a Sunday, mm. they're hoping um, that the church will continue to provide um, the comfort and spiritual um, support that they need. I wonder whether those people feel that they're really getting that kind of leadership from uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Indeed. Uh, well, let's have a listen and a watch of what he had to say yesterday in the House of Lords. Here he is, the Archbishop of Sanctimony. It is a siloed bill, not a whole-of-government bill. It does not draw in conflict <coughs> management and prevention, which drives migration. It does not draw in climate impacts, which drive migration and conflict. It is isolationist. It is morally unacceptable and politically impractical to let the poorest countries deal with the crisis alone and cut our international aid. I'll tell you what else causes um, migration and, uh, and irritation and war, and that's religion. But he didn't mention that, strangely. I mean, religion is a massive driver of refugees, isn't it? Well, absolutely. And what is he prattling on about with the, with the climate change thing? Oh, I know. Look, I am completely open to hearing, and I, I invite anyone who's listening who knows somebody who has fled to this country in a rickety inflatable boat because they are fleeing actual climate change. The weather. I want to hear that story. If there is somebody who has escaped from Bangladesh from extreme flooding and made their way perilous route all the way here to escape flooding whilst getting in a boat where there may just be a bit more than flooding, then I'd really like to hear from that person right. and that tale of extraordinary woe. Uh, although it'd be worth pointing out that there's plenty of places between Bangladesh and here. There certainly are. are. Also, cool. Bangladesh and the delta uh, of the river there has been flooding ever since Bangladesh has been Bangladesh. So the idea that suddenly you're going to flee because it's flooding, which it does all the time every single year, uh, is ridiculous. But I can tell you something. I have often thought about emigrating because the weather here is so awful. I don't know where to go. <laughs> oh, I could, I could come up with a very long list of very attractive places for you, Mike, where you don't get taxed very highly. Now that um, you're talking. <laughs> exactly. We'll have that conversation. We will. Enough. We will. We must fly off somewhere uh, warm and sunny. Um, stay with us, if you will, Isabel, because we've got lots more to talk about. We're going to talk about the Whitehall Blob, <clears throat> which is apparently uh, trying to stop a bonfire of basically a load of Brexit laws. We're going to talk about children as young as 12 taking puberty blockers up in Scotland as well. Much more besides. And also, what on earth should we do with the House of Lords? Should we abolish it? What do you reckon? This is Talk TV. On your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The House of Lords. Well, what do you make of it? Should it be abolished? I mean, I'm quite in favour of a second chamber. Isabel Oakshot's here. Isabel, I don't mind the idea of a second chamber, but I think the House of Lords has got too big. I think there's too many people in there uh, of a liberal persuasion who have, there's far too many Lib Dems in there. I've just been handed a piece of paper which says the Church of England's investment fund totals £8.3 billion. Uh, they own approximately 200,000 acres of land held by the church commissioners in 42 dioceses and 12,500 12, parishes. However, they've only managed to build 3,800 homes on that land. Now, my suggestion to Archbishop Wokeby uh, is to build a couple of hundred thousand homes on that land and house all the migrants who have come here illegally already. Ye gods is all I can say to that. <laughs> Someone's done some very speedy research here. I mean, I think it might appeal to Archbishop Wokeby's vanity. Maybe we could have a um, a kind of city of Wokeby or Welby City or yeah. something like that, which is... Sounds like Holby City. A, a, re a refugee kind of hotbed. Yeah. Um, on your broader question about what to do with the House of Lords, I mean, I'm old enough and have been around political reporting long enough to remember quite um, concerted efforts to reform the House mm. of Lords uh, under the Labour administration. It was a big pledge of the Blair Brown administration, and they went quite far down the line to try to make it happen. People might remember that they managed to get rid of all but 90-odd hereditary peers yes. from the House of Lords, but that's still leaves 90 out of um, 600, but I think there's probably about 800 and something now, maybe even more than yeah. that. Um, and the problem is that actually the hereditaries, um, whilst they're the kind of target and focus of everybody's 
um, sense of unfairness and kind of entitlement about the House of Lords, that I don't actually think they're necessarily the biggest problem. The problem is the cronies mm. and the completely um, unbelievably flagrant abuse of, of privilege um, that has been shown by successive outgoing prime ministers who have just used it to install a bunch of their mates. Yeah. None of have anything particularly uh, spectacular to offer by way of original expertise or thinking to bring to the House of Lords. In my view, if we're going to have this thing, there should be a pretty high threshold for qualification mm. for it. Yes. And it, I think it could be a real asset. There are many brilliant experts actually in the House of Lords, but we don't hear enough of them. Yes. But if it were a proper kind of scrutinising second chamber, it would perform a useful function, but it seems to me to be more of a, a sort of a vanity project for an awful lot of people. I mean, I'm sure you've been inside it. I've been inside it and I've always found it quite anachronistic that, you know, all the serfs come up and, and call people my lady and my lord all the time as they as they sort of serve them their tea. Uh, um, and, and, and looking at Welby yesterday, just standing up in his cassock and his regalia. And I once walked past the room where all the bishops sit and they all came out like some sort of comedy Monty Python troupe to go and sit in the, in the, in the chamber. It's all a bit weird, you know. I, so I actually don't mind the weirdness. I quite like all that anachronistic stuff. I mean, that really is what lay behind, for example, our spectacular coronation event last True. week. You know, we're quite good at this pageantry and ceremonial stuff. I think that's fine if we have, you know, as, as actually there are some quite ordinary members of the House of Lords, mm. people that haven't got there as a result of having spent a few months in Downing Street as a comms advisor, um, and actually, you know, there are people like, um, I think I'm right in saying Doreen Lawrence, you know, or perhaps uh, relatives of uh, people who've run amazing campaigns on behalf of communities. Yeah. And we should have brain surgeons. I mean, Lord Winston's in there. He's a good one. He's a good guy. Yeah. So look, there are there are some very, very brilliant people in there, but far too many cronies and far too many MPs who are outgoing MPs who are rewarded or bribed with a peerage if they do this or that. Exactly. And I'm afraid that, so it definitely needs reform. But the problem is every time, like civil service, you try to reform it, it seems to sort of go further into its shell uh, and become an almost impossibly opaque organisation. Let's move on to the civil service because we've got Kerry Badenoch this morning saying in the Telegraph that it's been impossible to push ahead with government plans to scrap European Union laws thanks to, guess what, Whitehall intransigence. Yeah, I mean, this is actually a really shocking story and I think it, it really undermines public faith in politicians. So Rishi Sunak, as part of his leadership campaign, pledged that he was going to review or scrap a huge number of uh, EU laws. Now, people might be wondering, why on earth are we having to make this pledge, you know, so many years after we're supposed to have actually delivered Brexit? And mm. that's a, a whole other thing. But he pledged to reveal or review to re repeal or review 2,400 EU laws in his first 100 days. Now we're told, oh, 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 sorry, it's all too difficult. Um, actually, Whitehall has found a whole load of other laws which has made this task impossible. It's a bit like when, you know, the mechanic looks under your car bonnet and starts poking around your car. Um, they funnily, funnily enough decide that actually there's so many faults with this thing that you're going to be there forever paying yet more money uh, to try to get the damn thing back on the road. Mm. Uh, so apparently they have now discovered some 4,000 uh 4,800, actually, laws. I mean, who knew we had so many? And rather than just finding some way to say, well, let's just kind of scrap them, um, there's the usual, oh, it's all too difficult. Yes. Um, and that's where we're at. And so I don't really know what getting Brexit done has actually meant so far. No, because it means that they can just continually kind of delay and kind of obfuscate and, and, and just put off what the, the government has been uh, sort of more or less... Uh, documented to do it's been mandated to do and it's not able to do because the civil service just goes no we're not we're not doing that today yeah and then you get all these people saying oh well brexit hasn't worked you know it's all a disaster well it hasn't worked because there is so much institutional obstruction mm. for actually making it work um to what extent is that an excuse for our political leaders I'm not sure. 
that's their job to lead to actually find a way to machete their way through all these barriers that are put up by people who actually don't mm. really want this to happen in the first place. No, exactly right. And one final story just to run past you. I know you feel strongly about this. There's a thing called the Care Inspectorate, rather laughingly called in Scotland, which apparently has recommended that children as young as 12 should be allowed to consent uh, to trans-affirming medical care, including puberty blockers. I mean, this is the height of madness, isn't it? There's nothing caring about this. And I have a 12-year-old mm. daughter. The idea that she would have any notion uh, of what is and isn't advisable in terms of hormone treatment to change her, her gender, uh, I, just, I just find astonishing. 12-year-olds mm. are not old enough to make such a life-changing and potentially, frankly, catastrophic decision. There's no turning back once you start down this path. And I think it is utterly, utterly misguided. And in due course, and I don't know how long this will take, we will look back on this and see it as an extraordinary and unforgivable act of child cruelty to be promoting and encouraging and supporting this stuff. It really is quite an extraordinary place we seem to have found ourselves in. Isabel, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Isabel Oakeshott, Talk TV's international editor there, talking a great deal of common sense about everything from Archbishop Wokeby uh, to the Church of England to the House of Lords. Should we get rid of it? Should we reform it? I don't think there's any doubt that it is overburdened uh, with idiots. There's no doubt that it is overburdened with people who shouldn't be there. There's too many Liberal Democrats in there. I would do away with all the bishops. I mean, after all, it's not Elizabethan England we're living in, is it? You know, it's not like the court of Henry VIII. Let's get some bishops in, because they really know what they're talking about, don't they? Archbishop Wokeby, you know, the dog collar says it all, I'm afraid. Get back in your box, mate. This is Talk TV. Rod Little coming up at midday. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican. Mike Graham, don't forget Rod Little coming up at 12 midday. You don't want to miss that. There's lots going on between now and then, of course, as well, because we're going to talk a lot about the House of Lords this morning. I know loads of you want to talk to me. Uh, how about this from Roger? Mike, people like Justin Welby, Keir Starmer, Ed Davey and Sadiq Khan keep on spouting left-wing drivel about the UK taking in less migrants in other EU countries. I'm sick of it and grateful for the balanced view that's here on the Independent Republic. Well, thank you, Roger. Uh, Terry in Ramsbottom. How many migrants is Archbishop Welby housing? in Canterbury Cathedral. Well, maybe he'll be like that other bloke who was talking to Julie Hartley Brewer. I've got three Ukrainians, he went. What? I mean, it sounds like you've got, you know, well, I've got, I've got a dog. I mean, you don't talk about people like that, do you? If you're supposed to be housing people because you're humanitarian uh, and good, you don't sort of chalk them down to some kind of ethnic um, minority set, do you? I've got three Ukrainians, a Bulgarian and a couple of Hungarians out the back. Uh, I'm afraid, in the shed, I've got a couple of Ethiopians. You know, it's great. It's fantastic. What are you talking about? It's not how you talk about people, is it? Uh, Archbishop Welby is a major reason why churches are empty, says Tony. Um, and Natasha says the good Archbishop Welby also allows a document called Valuing All God's Children to guide dealing with trans children in C of E primary schools. This, I believe, has input from Stonewall and Mermaids, the trans group. It is totally irresponsible for the church to be involved in this kind of thing with such young children. I agree. But you see, the trouble with Wokeby is he's got his fingers into every woke pie that he can find. Is it woke? Yes, I want to be in it then. Look at how much money they've got. 8.3 billion quid is in their investment fund. What are they doing with that? You'd get a lot of Ukrainians for that, wouldn't you? Hmm? Let's talk to Jamie Jenkins, social commentator, uh, because uh, apart from anything else, down in Welsh Wales, uh, the Plaid Cymru leader, Adam Price, has quit. What's it all about? Jamie, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I, I think that eight point uh, billion money that you just talked about, maybe they can pay for all the hotels that um, all the migrants are coming <laughs> well, in. Well, that would be a start, wouldn't it? Well, I'm, I'm saying, why don't they build a load of houses? They've got 200,000 acres in Britain, right? Or in England, probably. Um, they could build a lot of houses on 200,000 acres. They could get rid of the migrant problem in, a, in, in one fell swoop. Indeed, Mike. But yeah, going back to kind of Welsh Wales then. And yes. what we've, what we've What's got going here? on with Adam Price? Yeah, well, it's another Nationalist Party. You've got the SNP in meltdown in Scotland. We've got uh, the Nationalist Party in Wales in meltdown. So yes. can, I, 
a report's been done on on Ply Cymru. They were kind of looking into some complaints that have been made, and and it's come out basically saying there's a culture of misogyny, harassment, and bullying within the party, and there's been allegations of sexual assault and a toxic working culture. Blimey. Now he, he came out last week saying he was going to continue to carry on as the leader to try and implement some of the the findings of the report, but I think his position's just become untenable, Mike. And and the thing is that in Wales you've got. Uh, Drakeford hasn't got a, a majority within the, the Senate, so Plaid Cymru are pretty much propping up uh, Welsh Labour to get policies through. So, you know, absolute carnage, Mike. And, mm. and this, this isn't good, you know. This, you know, we want politics to be cleaned up, and, and this isn't good for, for kind of the, the culture in the party there. Isn't it interesting that, that there are so many similarities, though, between, as you say, the SNP and, and Plaid Cymru, where it became a sort of cult of personality, didn't it? And the person who runs the party is kind of God to everybody in the party um, and all sorts of things go on around them and they seem to not know about them. I mean, has he got a, has he got a hidden motorhome somewhere as well? Well, well, who knows on that one, Mike, but I, I think one of the, the kind of the good things in Wales, you know, I'm a big believer in the union, is that kind of the nationalist movement in Wales is not as much as it is in Scotland. So obviously, we imply coming in nowhere near trying to get an independent Wales referendum coming in because it's not kind of supported as much in Wales. But yeah, the, these things just, you know, you need to clean politics up. Mm. All parties are in a bit of a crisis at the moment, Mike, and, and this is just another one of them. Well, it really is. And so who's likely to take over? Is there going to be an election process? What happens? Yeah, so they're talking about getting somebody in by the summer. There doesn't seem to be anybody, you know, really standing out. I think we had Leanne Wood, who was the leader. She had a lot of kind of coverage because of the, the leaders' debates. And she was on a lot of the national ones. Right. So she was the previous um, person in charge. But I, I've struggled to think, you know, you kind of, you know, Mike, with politics, you need somebody competent, but you need somebody with a bit of a personality mm. and gravitas to, to push things. I can't really see anybody myself uh, who's really standing out, but I'm sure they'll sort something out over the yeah. summer. And meanwhile, uh, let's talk briefly about the NHS in Wales, because, of course, uh, the Tories constantly under attack for not sorting out the NHS in England. Um, but the Welsh NHS is in an even worse state, isn't it? Yeah, well, this is one of the things where streeting goes along on all his you know, commentaries across the kind of the, the studios, across the different channels in England, always slagging off and attacking the, the NHS and other Tories who undermine the NHS. And you're right, in, in Wales, it's, it's no better, it's no good at all. We've, we've had reports over the last few years of people in Wales going off to Europe for tourism because of the waiting list. So I think the thing I always say with the Welsh NHS, Mike, is Starmer talks about reforming the NHS. They've got a perfect kind of candidacy to do that in Wales to yeah. show us how are you going to reform the Labour Party, the NHS, do it in Wales, show yeah. us if it works. Great. You'll have a landslide if you can deliver that. Right. But they've done absolutely nothing in Wales, Mike. Well, waiting times for everything, I think, are longer than they are in England. Um, the shortages of doctors and nurses are longer and bigger than they are in England. Um, and all the deliveries of all sorts of different types of health care um, take longer as well. And also, Mike, we've just had, um, there was a fraud investigation going on in North Wales for the Betsy Cadalla Health Board. I think it's hundred odd million pounds kind of unaccounted for in the books. No, oh, great. And, and, and the NHS fraud team have just dropped the investigation. It's like, oh, crack on. So, you know, public money, we don't care. It's just no. scandalous, Mike, scandalous. I'll tell you what's also scandalous, and I want to touch on this with you, uh, is the Whitehall situation with these Brexit rules. Something like 4,000 plus EU laws which should have been abandoned, should have been chucked on the bonfire uh, of inanities. Uh, it turns out none of that's happened because Kemi Badenoch says Whitehall won't let it happen and they don't want it to happen, so they're just simply refusing to make it happen. Now, this one doesn't surprise me. I was working kind of in, in Whitehall myself uh, a few years back mm. and... and after kind of Brexit happened, and you could see, you know, the, the one thing with Brexit, Mike, just to kind of start there, is Cameron didn't think it was going to happen. So right. the civil service, literally, when the vote happened, there were literally zero plans to implement Brexit right. because they just didn't they think just it was going to happen. Cameron it, yeah. thought, yeah, this would shut it up. So I'm not surprised you've got civil servants not going to push this through. We, we had the vote in 2016. We left in 2020. Yeah. We're coming up, you know, it'll be 2024 before tomorrow, you know, right. before we know it. And we're still not delivering Brexit. People say, oh, What's the implications of Brexit overall? Well, we haven't really had a Brexit, have we? We haven't really delivered on what Not we at all. And, and, I mean, and that's a big problem. And, and Kerry Badnock, Business Secretary, saying that they're hoping to get rid of 600 EU laws um, soon, but that's less than a, a sixth of, of the number that they should be getting rid of. 
And, and the thing, the, the purpose of Brexit was, isn't it, was obviously to take back control not just of the borders, and we got the Channel migrants coming over, as you said, it was to take back control of our laws as well and do things differently. And yeah. we're pretty much doing pretty much the same as what we were doing when we were in the EU, Mike. Yeah, got a note here from Mark. He says, maybe we're keeping the 4,000 plus EU laws to make it easier for when Labour takes us back into Europe. And <laughs> frankly speaking, knowing what we know about Keir Starmer, the more he says he doesn't want to do it, the more likely it will happen. Well, the thing with Starmer, Mike, is he, he is the king of the U-turn, isn't he? he I is. think all the policies he, he said he was going to potentially push forward when he got the candidacy and got elected as leader, well, he's rolled back on pretty much all of those. I think Ellen, Emily Thornbury last night on our Peston show was saying she'd, she'd repeal this immigration bill that's going through if they get in. Uh, but I guarantee Starmer, you know, if he's for it or against it, Whichever way the wind's blowing will determine Keir Starmer's yeah. policy, Mike. And we don't know what way the wind's going to be blowing if he well, wins the election. Well, I mean, between now win. and the next election, which people seem to think is about 15 months' time, and I'll ask you about that in a second, um, you know, he could have flip-flopped about four, four times. Well, the, the thing is, he wants to try and appeal to everybody. But obviously, the electorate is divisive. I mean, people don't support kind of the right and the left. I, I, I'm not sure there is a right and a left in politics anymore. It might no. just seem to be a right and a wrong. Yeah. And, and, and for me, with Starmer... It comes back to things, you know, his pledges to reform the NHS. We'll say, show us in Wales, how are you going to do that? All, all these policies, there's nothing really substantive. And I think Starmer will win the next election, Mike, but it's not because people want Starmer. You look at the local election results, you compare the results that he got, which was good for the Labour, compared to what Tony Blair got before he won a landslide. Mm. Nowhere near the support for the Labour Party and the Starmer is what you had under Blair. And they, if they do win the election, Mike, or get a hung parliament, It'll be more a case of people fed up with the Tories rather than thinking there's this real well, good Labour Party. You're exactly thing. right on that because Times Radio actually did a poll yesterday and they found that of all the people who didn't vote Tory uh, on Thursday of last week in the local elections, the big majority of them didn't vote Tory because they didn't think the Tories were doing a very good job. It wasn't because they particularly wanted to vote Labour. And that's pretty much where we are with politics. You know, same in America, Mike. If Trump and Biden stand, most people probably vote for Trump because they don't like Biden. And people who vote for Biden because they don't like Trump. We mm. need to start getting politicians running these countries with real good ideas. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. ...ideas to push countries forward rather than a kind of a protest vote against the party you don't like. No, exactly right. Absolutely. Listen, great to talk to you, Jamie. Thank you very much indeed. Jamie Jenkins, social commentator there with his view on what's going to happen at the next election, which is probably, as we say, something like between 12 and 15 months away. Uh, Jackie says, didn't the Archbishop of Woke close the church doors during COVID? He wasn't so welcoming to all of them then. Uh, one from Johnny in Sevenoaks, who says, we stopped going to church when they erected a BLM poster on the church notice board. Church of Woke. I mean, absolutely right. Welby and the Lords are repeating the obfuscation of the will of the British people, just like they did with Brexit. We are being continually gaslighted and dictated to by a geriatric nursing home, which we have to pay for. And that's another one from Jackie. Well, listen, there's no question that we have to sort out the migration problem in this country, both legal and illegal. There's no question that the Archbishop of Woke will never, ever agree with putting any limitations on the numbers coming because he thinks that it's our duty to house them. I've got three Ukrainians will become the mantra of the Church of England. Unbelievable. Well, how about housing some homeless people in this country? How about helping some veterans out? How about building some houses in the land that you own? 
How about using some of the eight billion in your investment fund to help people instead of mouthing off in the world's biggest echo chamber? Unbelievable. Planks. This is Talk TV. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The independent republic of Mike Graham. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the independent republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, the home of common sense. It's where you get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I have to say, uh, with uh, all of the things that are going on at the moment, it's rather good to see that common sense appears to be seeping through, not just from this show, not just outside into the world, but into the court system, into the justice system. Stephen Tomkinson, the actor, has just been found not guilty of inflicting grievous bodily harm uh, on a man who was drunkenly making strange noises outside his home in the early hours uh, of the 30th of May 2021 causing him to fall over. Basically, this guy was drunk, making a nuisance of himself outside the house. A lot of the people uh, in Stephen Tompkinson's street uh, were uh, upset about it. They weren't happy about it. Stephen Tompkinson went outside to try and remonstrate with the guy, to try and get him to move on. Uh, The guy came at him uh, and he gave him a whack, which is what all normal thinking people would do. And I was saying just the other day to Kevin O'Sullivan, it would be an absolute travesty uh, if Stephen Tomkinson was found guilty, because it would mean his career would probably be over, uh, and he would probably have to end up paying damages to the bozo. And the bozo got what he deserved. It's as simple as that. And I'm glad to see that Newcastle Crown Court has decided, like me, that common sense must prevail, and Stephen Tomkinson is not guilty. We'll bring you more on that coming up in a little while. Right now, though, we're going to talk some more about Archbishop Wokeby uh, uh, with Rafe Haydel manku historian, broadcaster, and senior fellow at the New Culture Forum, much else besides to talk to him about as well. But before that, let's have a watch again at some of the things that woke be said in the House of Lords yesterday. The UNHCR has warned that the bill could lead to the collapse of the international system that protects refugees. Is that what we want the United Kingdom's contribution to be in our leadership? My Lords, we need a bill to reform migration. We need a bill to stop the boats. We need a bill to destroy the evil tribe of traffickers. The tragedy is that without much change, this is not that bill. My lords, we need a bill to end the Archbishop of Wokeby talking absolute and utter nonsense in the House of Lords, where he goes when he feels like it to collect his £300 a day. I put it to you, my lords, that Wokeby is out of his depth. I say to you now and once and for all that he must be finished. He must be ended. He must be given his marching orders. He must be told his cassock is no more. He must go back to the Lambeth Palace where he stays and stay forever there. I thought I was quite good. Uh, let's talk to Rafe Hadel manku Hello, Rafe. Hello, Mike. Very well done. Um, Thank you very much indeed. I don't know what it is about Wokeby that annoys me so much, but he really does irritate me. He is the epitome, I think, of the sort of champagne socialist class of people in this country who think they know better than everybody else, who detest the Tories, who detest what they think of as right wingers and who have no idea what is wrong with this country. And it's them. Exactly. It's it's telling that the other peers to support him in this were all Lib Dem and Labour peers, because, you know, for many generations, it was very much the case that the Church of England was the Tory party at prayer. Yes. Uh, but it's long ceased to hold Not anymore. Or I should say, actually, it's still the case for the congregations. But when it comes to the Church of England leadership, it's very much the Green Party at prayer, or the Corbynistas at prayer, or even <laughs> Black Lives Matter at prayer. Yes. Um, And this is one of the problems, because actually the Church of England bishops are the most elite and privileged group in society. You know, if you listen to our cabinet, they sound very different to the cabinets of Margaret Thatcher, for example. You don't get RP pronunciations, increasingly in our military and so forth. But when you listen to the the, uh, archbishops in in Parliament and in in the cathedrals, it still is very much the very definition of elitism. But it's the new elitism, if I can... Quote Matthew Goodwin. It is very much. Is that right up Matt Goodwin's street? It really is. Because isn't it ironic that here we have one of the most ethnically diverse governments, I think, that Britain has ever had. And yet they're constantly being accused of racism. 
by an overwhelmingly white yes. uh, Church of England hierarchy, yes. who are overwhelmingly drawn from a single class, most of whom, I think, I think every bishop, perhaps, I think is correct to say that they are all privately educated. Mm. And this comes at a time when the gap between the clergy and the laity grows ever wider, because the majority of people who take up the pews in Anglican churches, they voted for Brexit, they're in favour of strict limits on migration, they want to clamp down on the small boats coming over, and they hold generally socially conservative views. And yet the archbishops and uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury and, and other bishops, it's fine to use the House of Lords for this purpose because we have an established church, but they also make the same comments from the pulpit. Mm. They've spoken out about the evils of capitalism, about they've, they've condemned universal credit. They've spoken about uh, the, the Brexit being a mistake. Welby has said, you know, spoken of in the past about favoring uh, open borders. Now, no one is saying that the church shouldn't have positions. Of course it should. It's a moral institution. It should stand for an end to exploitation and injustice. But that's very different to actually criticizing specific policies of one party whilst adopting policies of another party or indeed, as we saw before with George Floyd, with Black Lives Matter. Yes. And that's what we have here. It's a complete refusal to understand the needs of their congregation, but also willingly or not, a refusal to understand that this illegal migration bill is about deterrence, is about creating a truly hostile environment. Yeah. And that's the only way you can stop people from coming. And by what by do-gooders like Woke, like Wokeby are just undermining that bill and all of the intentions. And they're going to make matters far worse by encouraging far greater numbers of people to come over here. Creating hostile environments mm. works. The example we can all look to is Denmark, where they have brought numbers of uh, illegal migrants down to levels not seen since the 1990s. How have they done that? Well, one of the critics of the Danish policy said they've made uh, Denmark seem so unwelcome. The message is quite clear. Stay in Germany, stay in France, yes. stay anywhere, but don't come over here. That's what this bill intends to do. And indeed, because at the end of the day, as I've said many times, the only way to stop the boats is to stop the attraction, attractiveness of Britain as a final destination for these people. You know, if they thought that they would get here and not be welcomed, not be put in a hotel, not be given free money and free food and the right to stay eventually, um, if they knew that that wasn't going to happen, they'd stop coming. Yes, well, a leading French politician said it's not rocket science. If you want people to stop coming to Britain, make Britain less attractive than France. Mm. And currently, you know, Britain is a is a uh, cakewalk when it comes to the black market uh, of, of uh, illegal employment. Uh, landlords aren't being asked to verify uh, people who are help being housed by them. Mm. Whereas in France, there are strict, strict uh, clampdowns on people who are working illegally. Yeah. People know they can come here, disappear into the black economy and have not, not so bad a life working in restaurants and elsewhere. Yeah. We need to get tough on this sort of stuff. As I said, Denmark did it so well. Denmark even took ads out, mm. papers in the Middle East, saying don't come here. Right. And if you arrive in Denmark and you've got over a thousand euros worth of uh, items on you, those will be confiscated yeah. and used to help house you and, and look after you. And um, they've, they also cut benefits by 50%, and they're called integration benefits. You know, these are, there are clear policies which are very easy to implement, which could be done. But when you get people like Welby speaking out, it undermines the entire yes. atmosphere we're trying to create. Which is and imagine also him ab absolutely sort of uh, quoting the ECHR, the European Court of Human Rights, or the European Convention of Human Rights, which we don't have to absolutely slavishly follow. It's a recommendation they make rather than anything else. And there's plenty of other European countries that completely ignore them. Yeah, well, D Denmark, as I said, has been hauled before the European Court on, on many occasions. Uh, but what's it m most interesting is that there's complete unity in Denmark between left-wing and right-wing governments. In fact, the most draconian policies have been implemented by the left-wing government of Denmark. They were the first ones to actually consider relocating people to Africa mm. a year before we did it yeah. in this country. Well, I don't hear that being condemned. I mean, Wokeby thinks, yeah, <laughs> thinks Rwanda's a bad idea. Well, the UN doesn't. The United Nations have re, uh, replenished people to Rwanda many times, uh, as has uh, Syria as has several other countries in uh, in the world who are under the auspices of the ECHR. Um, so the idea that Rwanda is somehow not a suitable place for refugees is entirely wrong because the United Nations thinks it's all right. But let's talk about another uh, big story this week. But just before that, Owen says this, and this is a very good representation of my audience. Archbishop Welby and his gang of priests live rent-free with food on their plates, whereas many people are struggling to live and paying taxes to accommodate illegal migrants at £7 million a day. What is the Church of England doing to accommodate these illegal 
illegal migrants in their rent-free, privileged lifestyle. Stop pontificating, take off your regalia and act like a normal, humble man who works hard to pay his bills. I think that says it all, doesn't it? Yes, well... Every bishop has a palace. What more can one, what well, more can quite. one say? Well, quite. And, and everybody's got a balcony. Well, not quite. But let's talk about uh, Adjira Ando, uh, who has had the most complaints made against her uh, to Ofcom because of what she said over the course of the weekend at the coronation coverage on ITV. Have a look. We've gone, we've gone from the, uh, the, uh, the rich diversity of the Abbey to a terribly white balcony. I'm very <laughs> struck by yes. that. I'm also looking at those younger generations and thinking, uh, what are the nuances that they will inhabit as they grow? Yeah, I'm looking at her and thinking, what the hell are you thinking? Um, the thing that I think I find most amusing about the clip is the sort of nervous laughter from the co-presenter of ITV, who doesn't seem to know quite how to react. Mylene Class, however, uh, looks as horrified as I've ever seen her. This is the most complaints that have ever been made. I think more than 4,000 complaints of Ofcom uh, for, for, for saying what she said. Incredible, really, isn't it? I think she's a ghastly woman. It's not the first time she has said things like this. I've heard her on BBC Radio 4, actually, on a podcast recently, say, saying much the same sort of incendiary, race-baiting stuff. Imagine if we were watching the coronation of uh, the King of Lesotho yeah. or of the King of, the, of Swaziland and saying, oh my gosh, this is a terribly black scene here. Yeah. Can you imagine the King of the Ashanti? Oh my gosh, why is there no diversity here? Mm. Why is it this only happens one way and in one direction? You know, I hate to break it to her, but Britain still is a majority white British country. Yes. The overwhelming majority of this, of this country were behind the coronation. And it's a, quite a perverted mind that that's the first thing that springs to your mind when you see this wonderful state occasion, this, 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 this scene we haven't had for 70 years of the king on the balcony with the royal family, everybody in the crowd there celebrating and yeah. seeing how wonderful it is. And this woman is so down the rabbit hole of race grifting that the first thing she can think of is, is how white is this? And it goes now to this, it's almost, an, it's, it's almost uh, a mental disease in many of the commentators on this issue that they are so obsessed that they can only see things now through race, yes. race alone. I know, because the sort of the slightly more remarkable thing is that she currently is playing uh, in a stage production of Richard III as Richard III. Uh, and as I said to somebody yesterday, yeah, great. She looks really like Richard III. Um, so uh, that's obviously a great piece of casting. And the only reason for casting her as Richard III is to be sort of, you know, edgy. Well, isn't it great? Let's get a black woman to play a former hunchbacked king. Brilliant. I'm looking forward to James Corden portraying Martin Luther King on the next uh, next Hollywood <laughs> epic that comes out. I mean, it really uh, is. It really is. And mad, it's really, isn't it? it's really. You know, one of the things that's really telling. Whenever each episode, each new series of The Crown was coming out on Netflix, everybody would say, "Oh my gosh, what great cast! Look, Matt Smith looks just like Prince Philip. Mm. You know, Olivia Colman looks just like the Queen." All that attention being done to make sure that the characters look just like the people that they're representing. Um, suddenly, that all goes out of the window. And people turn a blind eye to all yes. that when you have, for example, there was a play in the West End recently with Gore Vidal versus William F. Buckley Jr., two right. great heroes of mine. William F. Buckley Jr. was quite controversial in the civil rights movement. Yeah. He was played by a, by a black actor. And I just thought, in what? what sense is this actually a reality? I know. <laughs> but of course, all the people that you, if you complain about it, they say, oh, why do you care? But then if you said, as you say, if you said, well, I'll tell you what, let's portray then Nelson Mandela uh, as being played by Robert De Niro, they wouldn't fancy it. And they'd go, well, we can't do that. that. That would be appropriation. That would be nasty, horrible, nasty. Don't do it. But what it also does, you know, and actually a lot of people on the, on the other side of this argument actually agree, agree with us on this position because, in a sense, it gives this fantasy uh, uh, reality, this, this fantasy image that in the past all the cultures lived side by side in happy harmony. And it actually undermines the civil rights movement. When you see things like Bridgerton that, that this woman is also involved yes. in. It gives Which the is impression, also a pile of rubbish, to be honest. Yeah, but it gives the impression that, you know, in the 18th and 19th century, everyone lived very happily side by side. And it, 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 uh, it negates and undermines the struggles that people had to go through, yeah. actually, to get to today's current levels of equality. I know. I shall end it with this from uh, Pongo, which is probably the tweet of the day. Is Archbishop Welby presenting Match of the Day this weekend, he says? <laughs> well, he's qualified for it, isn't he? Obviously, because uh, he's woke. So that's what well, we, we want. I can see Lin I can see Lineker in the uh, in, in the pulpit very easily. Yeah, that I can see. Uh, yeah, grand priest of woke, isn't with, he, with so. a mitre on his head and a, a shepherd's crook. Absolutely right, leading his flock across the Red Sea as he parts it. 
getting quite spiritual today. Anyway, Rafe, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Rafe Hadel Mankiw, historian, broadcaster and senior fellow. Uh, I'll tell you what we'll talk about as well uh, amongst all of the things that we're doing here. And don't forget, Rod Little will be with us uh, at midday. You won't, don't want to miss that. Um, is Stephen Tompkinson found not guilty of GBH after allegedly punching a man? Uh, he was on trial in Newcastle Crown Court. Common sense has prevailed, of course, because Stephen went outside uh, in the early hours of the morning to remonstrate with a drunk um, who was shouting and making weird noises outside his house in the street. Stephen went out. Um, the guy kind of got into a bit of a tussle with him. There was a bit of provocation. There was a bit of pushing and shoving. Uh, and Stephen punched him, supposedly. Um, and, you know, it, he did what any normal person would do. And I'm very pleased to know uh, that he's not guilty. I used to spend some time with Stephen Thompson years ago, uh, so I wish him well. How about this from Amanda? Huge thanks to Mike Graham and Talk TV for saving me from a nervous breakdown, she says. I accidentally came across your show a few months ago and rejoiced to learn there were like-minded, common-sense people in abundance. And they were calling in. Hallelujah. Well, Amanda, this is it. This is the place for common sense. This is the place for the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and absolutely no wokeism. Thanks very much indeed. This is Talk TV. Let's talk now to Andrew Montford, Deputy Director uh, at Net Zero Watch. Although, uh, just a little bit of breaking news before I go to him. Explosion in the centre of Milan uh, apparently has left several vehicles on fire. Th plumes of thick black smoke rising above the wreckage. Not sure why uh, there's been an explosion in Milan, but we'll bring you the details of that. Um, but we want to talk to Andrew Montford, of course, at Net Zero Watch because... Uh, British Gas has come out, basically, uh, and said that uh, heat pumps can leave your home colder than a gas boiler. Well, I could have told them that because I've told people before that heat pumps don't work. Let's find out what's going on. Andrew, very good uh, morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Yeah, so, I mean, I've spoken to several people who have had heat pumps fixed um, into their homes, and I don't, I don't think I've met one yet uh, who was particularly happy with the result. No, I mean, I think this is this has been a, a familiar story for a number of years now that that an awful lot of people who install heat pumps um, have problems with them. I think this is this is mainly an issue with um, uh, the, the quality of the insulation that, that UK homes have. I think yeah, there are other countries that, that use heat pumps quite a lot. Place, you know, there are places even in Scandinavia, mm. some of the Scandinavian countries use a lot of heat pumps, but they have a housing stock that is much better insulated than ours. Right. Um, and the cost of retrofitting insulation to the UK housing is is so high that it makes it an impossibility for most people. And the government is pushing, mm. pushing, pushing, pushing to try and get heat pumps installed. And so they're getting put into houses for which they're not suitable. Right. And this is why we hear so many horror stories about people sitting in the cold um, and, and, and seriously, seriously uh, upset with what they with what they've done. Yes. I mean, it seems as though there's different types of heat pumps, some of which may be better than others, because I've heard about the ones where you have to dig a hole in the garden effectively and put something down there and the ones that you have to put something in sort of a garage instead. So, I mean, is there a difference between the type of heat pump you put in? Yeah. So, I mean, there are ground source heat pumps and there are air source heat pumps. Um, so, yeah, for a, for a bigger house you would be directed to um, a ground source heat pump, which involves laying cables underneath your garden, right. um, which is fine if you have a big garden, but of course most people don't have right. big gardens. A, a ground source heat pump is, is obviously much better. It works better in cold weather um, because underground it doesn't get that cold. Um, but most people are forced to have air source heat pumps. And when it does get cold, the efficiency of, of the, the heat pumps declines dramatically mm. so at the time when you need heat the most the problem is that your heat pump is going to be least efficient and so your electricity bills are going to be the highest right i mean the, the interesting thing about this this uh move um to to sort of um to so they're offering people refunds mm. if the heat pumps don't work is you know what happens if in 10 years time you get a really, really cold winter like we had in 2009-10 or 2010-11 when temperatures are, you know, minus five, minus 10? Where I live, we got down to minus 13 um, wow. at, at, at some points yeah. that winter. How's your heat pump going to uh, perform then? That is actually really quite scary because mm. you know, then you're getting into life-threatening. Uh, well, exactly right. I mean, I've got a friend in Scotland who's got some heat pumps installed. It's quite a big house. And he said that at the time when it was that cold... Uh, the temperature inside his house was five degrees centigrade. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and that, it's I mean that's just not acceptable, is it? 
No, that's right. For for, for this that sort of um, thing to be happening in in a first world country yeah. is is absolutely appalling. But you know, I think this is the way that things are going to go because you know they they are just pushing on with with making people get get heat pumps regardless. I mean, it and, seems yeah. to me to be a, a sort of um, a very bizarre form of self harm. You know, I mean, why would you take out a gas boiler, which is incredibly efficient and probably very, very good at keeping you warm, keeping the water hot and all the rest of it and replace it with something that doesn't do that quite so well? And they're also now saying they're going to offer a, um, a refund to people if somehow the heat pumps don't work very well. And if you, you're disappointed and they will pay up to £2,999, which apparently is the cost of installation. So it's not cheap either. Okay, so that's only the cost of insulation, yeah. of course, uh, of insulation. You know, but you've also had to pay for the unit itself. So you're talking and about potentially what? tens of thousands of pounds of insulation, right? Um, so, so I mean, and, this is really folly for the rich, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, of course, you then get into the thing of well, if the heat pump doesn't do the job after all the money you've spent. Mm. Okay, they give you the installation cost back, but you're going to want to get your gas boiler back. Are you going to be able to get your gas boiler back? Are you going to be able to get the gas Mm. resupplied? Because at the moment, you know, they're saying new houses are not going to be able to get uh, connected to, um, to the gas grid. So, you know, are you then stuck? You, so you then have to spend a load more money on, on insulation or something? The, I have no idea. Yeah, it, the, it's going to be a shambles. The other risk, of course, is the temperature of water because hot water needs to be a specific temperature, I'm told, to make sure that it remains free of bacteria, that it remains free of things like Legionnaire's disease. And at certain cooler temperatures, the water can harbour those kinds of bugs. I have heard that this that, you know people have raised this issue with me before i've also heard that you know um um, a heat pump it can essentially um turn itself into an immersion heater um for you know half an hour or something to raise the water to the temperature Mm. at which it is safe so i'm not sure where the facts of that lie yeah but i mean again you don't want to be asking that question you know is my water safe to bathe in uh well surely you shouldn't have to ask that question because it should be safe to bathe in yeah that's right uh I mean, at the end of the day, you can you can actually step back from this and say, well, look, the costs of doing this clearly outweigh the benefits. The costs are absolutely absurd. And, and you know, if you sort of look at the what the benefits are alleged to be, you mm. know, um, a tiny fraction of a degree change to global temperatures in 2050. You know, it, it's it's utter madness. This is completely and utterly irrational. Mm. It really is. Um, and I mean hard to believe that you and I, Andrew, are two of the few people actually saying these things because everybody else is going, oh yeah, you must get a heat pump. Get an electric car, it's really good. You know, all of the things that we're supposed to be buying into seem to be, one, expensive, two, uh, with a rather sort of hidden cost somewhere down the road, and three, uh, with a very limited lifespan. Yeah. I mean, how long do these things last before you need to replace them? Yeah, I mean, I think a a heat pump is essentially like, it's essentially a fridge. So, you know, it's it's going to last, you know, 10 or 15 right. years. Um, so, yeah. And then, you know, if you replace, you have to replace a boiler every 10 or 15 years and it costs you a couple of thousand pounds. Obviously, yeah. with a heat pump, it's going to cost you 5,000 pounds right. or something. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the cost is absurd. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's the thing I find frustrating is that there are so many people who just they get on the bandwagon they see a bandwagon and they want to get on it and you know so the government says you need to get an ev they they go oh marvelous i'll go and get an ev this is the latest thing i'll go and do that and and they don't question what they're told by authority or by the mainstream media if you like and i think i think this is this is a big change that needs to happen before um we'll see any change people have to start questioning a whole lot more because what they're being told is clearly nonsense i mean you can go right back do you remember you remember uh, um um a few years back they were making people do um cavity wall insulation yes i mean this was a huge disaster but lots of people did it because mm. they were told it was the right thing yeah. to do and then their houses ended up with dry rot right um and it you know it was costing you know hundreds of thousands of well, pounds i think the lesson here is don't listen to the government when they give you advice on anything because don't forget these are the same people that told us that diesel cars were much cleaner than petrol cars it was ed Miliband back in the day uh, everybody went out and got a diesel car and now we're being told oh no that's terribly dangerous that and it's going to be worthless in about seven years so maybe you should get rid of it and of course that's the same thing that's happening with evs isn't yeah it? because because um you know um 
the, 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 the value of an EV falls away like a stone because, you know, nobody wants to have to cover the cost of replacing the batteries. And, you know, again, you, we get this sort of wave of disinformation from official sources saying, oh, well, you can recycle the batteries. Yes. Well, yeah, but the problem is, uh, what you know, how much is it going to cost? Yeah. I mean, you're actually going to have to pay somebody to take the battery off your hands to get it recycled. And, you know, recycling involves a huge amount of energy, huge amount of waste, huge amount, you know, all these toxic materials have to be disposed of in a safe fashion. And yeah, it's, it's again, you're quite right, Mike, we shouldn't be listening to the government on these things. We really shouldn't. Good to talk to you, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed. Andrew Montford, the Deputy Director at Net Zero Watch, with the latest bizarre story coming out of the Net Zero Brigade's kind of uh, uh, exhaust pipe, if you like, telling us that, oh, um, actually, um, yes, heat pumps are great, but, but they might not be as efficient as gas boilers. Well, we knew that, but they're more expensive than gas boilers. Yep, we knew that as well. Um, and uh, you might have to replace them in a little while, then they'll be even more expensive then as well. Yes, yes, we knew that as well. That's why I'm not getting one. That's why I'm not listening to you. Um, now, the explosion in the centre of Milan. Uh, <clears throat> we've got a bit more information on it now. Uh, they think that it may have been because a van originally caught fire um, and several other cars are now apparently on fire. It's in the Porta Romana neighbourhood of Milan. Uh, high plumes of black smoke rising between billions. There are firefighters on the scene, several cars in flames. The wreckage of one vehicle appears to be in the middle of a rather narrow road. It's not immediately clear what caused the explosion, but we'll bring you that, uh, of course, as soon as we know it. Um, uh, but it sounds like a pretty bad situation. So um, if you've got any friends or family over there, you might want to get in touch with them to make sure uh, they're OK. This is Talk TV. Rod Liddell's coming up at midday, don't forget. Coming up next, though, we'll take more of your calls. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.